Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Roberts from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You were kind of like almost lab mates, honestly, even yeah. though we're not quite, yeah. We, we know each other's stuff pretty well, so I know that you're a, uh, you're a bug guy, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say. Oh, maybe it sounds a little weird, but yeah, I guess it's fair to call myself a bug guy. <laughs> Why does it sound weird? I guess you sort of, or a picture comes to mind where it's kind of like Spider-Man, but slightly, maybe six legs instead and less webs. But mm, yeah, yeah. want to be like a weird bug guy. You're like a cool bug guy. I, I feel like most bug guys would be pretty cool, though, because, yeah, bugs are cool. So you've always liked insects? Um. No, no. So, so I actually used to uh, really like or dislike them. And well, no, I was neutral towards insects. I really dislike spiders and I still am lukewarm about spiders. Um, but I kind of got into them in college or like, I guess, undergrad. We had to take an organismal biology class and it was in the peak recession times. So they like cut a lot of classes and there wasn't a lot available. And my like advisor, counselor person, um, was the professor of the entomology class. And he was like, why don't you just take this? We could make it count for that. Um, and I had never considered it. I think I thought I wanted to work on like amphibians or something. I thought they were interesting. And I took it and it, it, yeah, they're just crazy. They're just like little aliens. They breathe through holes in their body, like the side of their body they can just do everything, like turn into completely different forms, liquefy their bodies, fly. It's just, yeah, it's all, they're cool. What do you study about bugs? One of the other things I guess I should say that I find most inter interesting about insects really is how wide of range of environment they can tolerate. So like a lot of what I work on involves cold. And one really cool thing that a lot of insects can do is tolerate freezing and not die, which is, it's not like a unique to insect phenomenon, but there's like only a handful of vertebrates that can do that. And it, it just, yeah, it just seems so crazy to me because, like, I grew up in California where, like, you know, uh, 50 Fahrenheit seems cold. And there's these beetles that are tolerating, like, zero. They just uh, kind of, like, go into deep freeze and then just come back when it's... They go, like, offline and then come back online when it warms back up. Yeah, so I, I guess there's a few different approaches to kind of cold that insects deal with. Well, like a, a big aspect of my research is mostly focused around seasonality. So there's these like seasonally prepared states that they can be in. Hibernation would be an example for, for mammals. Insects is typically called diapause or it could be quiescent. So basically they go into dormancy. So there's this long period of preparation so they can tolerate cold, but they're already inactive when they have the cold like experience the cold temperatures. So active insects can also, when they're exposed to cold, a lot of times they lose the ability to coordinate or like to still, I guess, maintain muscle function and they just kind of fall on their backs, <laughs> or like fall over and they just sit there and until they come back, it's called chill coma because they are essentially in a coma from being chilled. But so there's a difference. Sometimes insects all of a sudden, like if this were happening in a lab, they wouldn't really prep for being cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if in the wild, they kind of know seasonal cues. And so they kind of prepare for the cold. And is there a difference in that in experience for insects? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So 
I mean, I guess it, it can get a bit more complicated. So partially also what I work on is seasonal. Well, yeah, so I work on winter, like how what insects do in winter? And there is still acute cold exposures that can occur in winter. And I do partially work on that. Um, so there's still se seasonal preparedness and then cold that happens in that time that they, they deal with. And yeah, I guess the, the mechanisms are a little bit different just in terms of time that they have to maintain. Or a lot of what happens when they're in this chill coma, not seasonally induced cold, is they lose oh, like that. They're in, unable to maintain ion balances. So their nerves basically just don't function. So they can't like coordinate a lot of stuff and they just can't move. I'm not really sure how you deal with that. I guess there's like some subtle adjustments you can do to like fix your mem cellular membranes and, and stuff to prevent leakiness of the ions. But typically with the seasonal shifts that insects do, at least the ones, the one that I work on, I'll speak specifically about the one I work on. What is that? It is a Sierra willow beetle. So it's just this little, little beetle that eats willow in the Sierra Nevadas. Well, it is distributed across Western United States. And yeah, it's, it's a high elevation in the, the Sierras and it, it just looks like a little ladybug, but reverse colors. Um, so it's just black with a little red pattern on it. It's fairly cute for, for a bug, you know? And they, they don't really do anything particularly interesting in terms of what people normally think of. It's not like um, pine beetles that are this large, like pest, I guess. They're just really interesting because they live in these really variable environments in the, the Sierras because California is fairly drought prone. So there's a lot of variation in, in snow, snow that happens, which impacts like temperature and stuff like that too. And then you were, sorry, you were about yeah. to say what, uh, yeah, what yeah. you're going to say in the context of your willow beetles. Yeah. So what these beetles end up doing is they just put a bunch of like, well, they, so they specifically use glycerol, but basically they just pump a bunch of stuff into this open fluid that's floating around them to increase just how much stuff is in there. Cause that disrupts ice crystals from forming or it controls the rate at which it does, but it disrupts it typically. And yeah, so they, they do that. I think there's a lot of equivalents. So like frogs have a similar strategy. They can freeze, they, but they use sugar. They just put glucose all over themselves to <laughs> prevent it. And some insects do that as well. But yeah, they pretty much just like decrease the water to stuff ratio in their blood. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So they just don't, so the ice doesn't kind of like you know, like a situation in a soda can in the freezer, like the, the ice would kind of just pop their cells. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Especially as on that scale, the ice crystals are like a lot more stabby, you know, ah, yeah. kind of grow like little <laughs> pyramids. Yeah. And so that's actually, there's an interesting problem that, so I mentioned earlier that some insects can freeze um, and survive, but as, so the ones that, that want to freeze and survive don't want to suppress what temperature they cool. At, or like what the temperature they freeze at. So um, if you get it too low by adding a bunch of these like solutes in there, like glucose or glycerol, once the crystal formation starts, it like goes fast. <laughs> you know, so it, it like expands really rapidly. So typically what they try to do is initiate. And when I say they try, it's not like they're making the conscious decision, but they have this strategy of trying to initiate freezing at higher temperatures so that they can control the rate of growth so it doesn't like damage as much yeah and that's what that's what my the beetles i work on do oh cool so they're 
uh, the water in their cells is freezing above zero, is what you're saying, above zero degrees Celsius? So I think it's, it's typically the water outside of the cells first that is freezing. I think it's, it's very problematic, problematic if it's inside the cell. And no, it, so usually, like, I, I guess, you know, seawater has a lower freezing temperature than fresh water because there's oh. salt in there and yeah. stuff, right? It's, it's a similar, I guess, phenomenon to what, what I was talking about inside a beetle. So just like most living organisms are going to have a freezing point below, I guess, zero Celsius would be the freezing point of just water in a room. And the, the temperature you go below that is called uh, your super cooling point. It's like the ability to cool below zero. And there's some insects that can, you know, uh, delay freezing until minus 20 Celsius. And then like the beetles I work on that do control the ice freezing or the ice crystal growth rate uh, and survive freezing do it at about minus five degrees. And then they can tolerate down to minus 15 before they die. Yeah. So they're kind of like doing it. I say warmer temperatures, but it's still cold. <laughs> it's relatively warm. And so these insects at some point, what, what kind of, what's their life like? Are they like, how much time do they actually spend as like active living things? I mean, you know, they're always living and th- when they're alive, they're always living things, but you know, yeah. having yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of life. <laughs> yeah. So they live for one year. They have yeah one full life cycle. And then typically at least the Sierra populations that I work on spend about eight to nine months dormant. So two thirds to three quarters of their life, just yeah, dormant. There are, are a couple of populations of these beetles that live on the like Mendocino and Sonoma coast. And I think they get a little bit more time because it's just less seasonal there, a little nicer all, all year. But yeah, Sierra's are pretty cold until they're not, you know, like usually June to like August or something. They're They're pretty, yeah, trying to fit in, I guess, reproducing, growing, and then preparing for winter. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. There's actually one, uh, there's a species of, oh, I'm probably going to mess this up. It is some sort of caterpillar, like moth, that lives in the Arctic. And I think the specific example I was reading about was in Greenland, and it it takes like seven years for it to become an adult. So it like molts and then spends winter and then comes comes around again and then maybe molts again. Yeah, so it takes seven years to actually finally get there. And... It's like for that caterpillar, I guess it would be like it would have a time period of like a, a month or something. Yeah. Just be a larva. To, I don't know. Is there <laughs> like yeah. fine grass to eat there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like little shrubby things that they can eat. Yeah. Yeah. So they're probably living, well, I guess, if it is like a month of growing season, it's uh, 11 twelfths of their life in dormant. Yeah. And then, I, I mean, most of the terrestrial habitat. Well, I guess most of the terrestrial habitat in the world, not most, a big portion of it is in the Northern Hemisphere at pretty high latitude too. Like Canada and Russia are these huge land masses and they get really cold. So a lot of insects just have to deal with this. Um, That's just the reality for a lot of living things that you got to spend a lot of your life not actually living it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or I guess the the other strategy of like being able to tolerate winter and what, what, the insects I work on do. A lot of birds just kind of avoid winter and leave. And I guess there's a lot of insects that migrate as well, right? Like this is just something we're kind of getting an idea of how much 
they do, but like monarchs are a pretty classic example, right? So you just have to either avoid it or tolerate it or yeah. not survive it. <laughs> so you're, you're generally studying how these insects tolerate the winter. And so is there kind of like a specific thing that you're studying in that? Like, is there a main question that you're interested in around how these insects are tolerating winter? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess most of my dissertation work is really looking at the role that snow plays in how insects survive winter or what stresses they experience over winter, which I had kind of alluded to a little bit. There's a lot of variability in snow in the Sierras that these beetles experience, but, um, yeah, so snow is, is a really good insulator that can buffer, I guess, everything below snow from the really cold air temperatures. So usually temperatures below snow don't really go below freezing much. Yeah, at least soil surface if there's enough snow. So a lot of insects and well, a lot of organisms use this space to kind of survive winter. But there's increasing prevalence of drought and decreased winter snow cover in California, at least, or in the Sierras. So they're going to kind of be winters in the future may start to shift a little bit less snowy and more cold. So as, as kind of climate or the world in general has increasing mean temperatures, there's actually an increasing cold that insects that rely on snow but don't have it are going to be experiencing. And there, there's a really cool paper, I think in 2003, that called it colder soils in a warmer world. Yeah. Peter Groffman, that is, yeah, I, I think that's, it's really interesting, like paradoxical thing of climate change. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in like what that looks like across a mountain. So like um, how it varies as you get higher up the mountain? Yeah, because if you just think of a typical mountain or even like a cartoon caricature of a mountain, right? There's always snow at the peak and then it goes away a little bit as you go down. And temperature also changes across elevation where highest elevations are cold. So kind of this, this like changing environment where there's increasing snow and colder temperatures as you go up. So the role that snow is going to play in kind of blocking the cold is going to depend on where you are on a mountain. So I'm, I'm yeah, trying to kind of tease apart what, what that means. So you've been going to the Sierras and kind of like checking out what's going on with these beetles? Yeah, yeah. So I work in the eastern Sierras right around Bishop, between Bishop and Mammoth, and there's populations of these beetles that have been monitored for a long time by um, a couple of our collaborators, Nathan Rank and Elizabeth Dahlhoff. Yeah, so I, I've actually started working on the system around these beetles when I was in my undergrad. So it's now been quite a while. Um, I actually started after I took that entomology class that I mentioned earlier. Like and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I so yeah, I grew up in Fresno, which is like, you can see the mountains from it some most days. You know, we would go up there sometimes, like up to Yosemite when people come visit and stuff. But I had never like gone backpacking or gone into the Eastern Sierras till I started working out there. And it was, yeah, I was like experiencing it for the first time when I started doing that. So yeah. in a way it kind of was life-changing. And then I guess the science part kind of was life-changing as well. <laughs> but, yeah. Have you, uh, have you yourself like experientially noticed changes in how much snow there's been up there over the time you've been going up to the Sierras? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess the most obvious what, what one or the most obvious change, I guess, was about 2012 to like 2000, maybe it's 2011 to 14. What, there's like the biggest drought in California history um, that occurred in the time that I've worked up there. 
so there's like this this period of long minimal snow cover that occurred and um i think one of the things that is most striking that i've noticed by going to these populations for a decade now is how many of them have just gone locally extinct and like there's i remember my first year out working there there was this site that we do a lot of like surveys where you just walk around counting beetles for for some time and it was the first one that i ever i think i counted like 310 minutes and then um, this was 2009 was the first summer I worked out there. And then 2020, there are no beetles at that site anymore. And like almost that entire mountain drainage is completely, yeah, it's almost beetle free, which is, yeah, it, it's crazy to see change over. I mean, that's, that's a while, but like not really. So it has changed quite a bit since I started. Yeah. That's a, you think, uh, that's depth or do you think that's a um kind of uh product of like maybe short-term variation to see so few beetles or do you think that's really like i don't know like are there not going to be those beetles there anymore um i think that this has happened before maybe not to the same extent where so they're, they're completely gone in that drainage except for one site which I think they've constricted about the same amount before um, in the late 80s, I believe. But, and they, they did come back. So I think it's possible, but that's kind of relying on, I guess, something like a normal, few normal years for them to be able to recover. And it doesn't seem, I think that's one of the biggest changes that have really been happening in the Sierras is that it just, it's extreme more often. Right. You you see just extreme drought or extremely snowy years. Yeah, so I think they could come back, but it's going to take a good few years of good weather, I guess. Right. Um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully they come back. Okay, well, so that's kind of uh, a bummer. <laughs> but um, so... I mean, wait, that, but that, that's kind of why we try to study this stuff too, right? It's, it's, if it's going to happen, you want to at least try to understand why it's happening so that you maybe somebody can do something about it in the future or someplace else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, understanding what is happening is, is key and trying to help or mitigate it, I guess. So. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So then what are you doing to study it, to try to help or to help mitigate um, what, what's like actually doing uh, experimental work to figure out more about this like yeah I, I, so it's a pretty wide range of stuff like part of what I, like part of what I do is collect beetles and then get them to enter dormancy and then simulate winter by or like overwintering for them by burying them and I, I try to do this or I do this in two like two areas one that keeps snow off of it um, so they can like there's a group of beetles experiencing a no snow winter. And then we use a separate group that is just out in the open. So it gets ambient snowfall. So um, yeah, part of it is burying beetles alive and then coming back and checking on them. And then I, I try to do some aspect of like, like, you can't do everything in the field. It's just not, it's difficult to get out there, especially when there is snow. Um, so I do a lot of like mimicking conditions in lab and incubators and like do some that's where i do like cold tolerance assays which is um basically take a beetle put it in a tube and then put it into a 
bath of ethylene glycol, ethylene glycol, some liquid that doesn't freeze um, until really low temperatures and it will just cool them down. You can kind of like precisely control what temperature they're experiencing. So yeah, that also doesn't sound, yeah, the list of stuff I'm saying now, bearing beetles, freezing beetles. It, well, it just sounds, it sounds weird to us because when you say yeah. bury a person, freeze a person, that sounds like really bad for the person, but these, yeah. beetles, these are, this is part of their lives, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they can, to well, they can tolerate most of it. Like I, I don't, it's not like, <laughs> seeking to um, expose them to anything they wouldn't in the natural environment. Um, I'm just trying to understand what events in the natural environment, how that impacts them. Yeah, right, for sure. Their survival. Yeah, so I yeah, am not bearing humans out there. But, um, and then I, I guess one of the other things that, that I think you and I have a lot of overlap in our interest in is um, like energetic costs. And I, I'm really interested in energetic cost of winter and what changing temperatures will mean because energy use rates in insects is determined like temperature dependent. So changing temperature means you change uh, energy use and, and overwintering organisms can't just get up and feed. They're kind of operating off of like a limited amount of energy. So, um, and a lot of how I study this is by measuring respiration rates of beetles. And this sounds, I think, way cooler than it actually is in process. But I think you quantify CO2 production in beetles by using lasers. So sometimes I say, like, I measure beetle breath using lasers, which makes it sound like really cool. Um, and really, I just kind of inject some gas into a box. And yeah. Um, Honestly, injecting gas into a box sounds complicated too. <laughs> it can't be. It take it took me a while to figure out exactly how to do it right, but um, yeah, yeah, and it, that's it's a big big thing of what I've done is I spent so long <laughs> just measuring respiration rates, which yeah, I think you can relate to that <laughs> as well. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a. Uh... You got, you got animals doing their thing. You got the machine doing its thing. You got you doing your thing. And, you know, occasionally, sometimes everything lines up and you get a good reading. <laughs> yep. And at least with overwintering organisms, they don't have their own behaviors, really. You know, they're kind of just like dormant. So it's it's easier to work on them than it could be otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is helpful for a lot of stuff. And also it decreases the animal care you have to do because you kind of want to not disturb them when they're overwintering. So yeah, so I guess those are really like the main main things of what I've done. Quantified, I guess, how much storage lipid are in beetles as well. It's like a big one that I've done too. Cause it, yeah. Because that's kind of what they use. They get they store a bunch of fat when they're eating in the summer and then they use that during the winter. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I think like you can get a pretty good idea of how much energy is currently being used by using respiration rates, but it really is this like acute what they're feeling at the moment or what the temperature is that they're in where um, looking at lipid stores gives you kind of this summary of everything they've experienced. So uh, yeah, a lot of the work I've done kind of compares and tries to predict how much energy would be used based off of temperature and respiration rates, and then compare that to um, what we actually see with these lipid measurements. How's uh, how how have things gone? Have you uh, found any like 
really cool results or uh, like wh where are you at? Yeah, uh, so I guess the goal of, of trying to kind of predict what the energetic cost of winter is goes back to this question of, of what snow does across elevation, like how it regulates that and how it regulates, yeah, stress, which in this case is energy stress or cold stress. And um, yeah, so I, I've, I've used, we have weather or I guess microclimate data across elevation or beetles over winter and have and kind of looked at energy use across elevation. And what we see is that increasing, well, as you go up in elevation, the energetic cost of winter is lower, which is weird because it's longer as well. But I think what a big thing of, of what people typically haven't thought about when they're thinking about snow cover is that it buffers not only from cold, but from warm as well. And these like spring warm temperatures temperatures are also depleting energy stores um, before the beetles are emerging. So mm. at low elevation, we're having more of that um, exposure to warmer temperatures. So that's kind of one like sort of interesting finding. Yeah, that I found and like uh, oh sorry, but just about that, you're kind of saying like the the beetles might be going along well and like oh I got plenty, I got plenty of storage, and then all <laughs> of a sudden the warm weather um, starts making them just go into overdrive then yep. their reserves plummet yeah exactly yeah they're um they're making it so close to the finish line and then potentially that's where all of the cost is so um they may just not make it and i think that this is going to be particularly interesting oh so if there's earlier snow melts and exposure to these warm temperatures there's still like a spring has a lot of fluctuating hot and cold too so they're also then exposed to cold temperatures and warm temperatures. Um, so they get kind of the worst of both worlds yeah. um, with that too. And that, that is another thing with snow that is happening. I guess this is a more like broad pattern, but snow melt is starting earlier and then onset of snowfall is starting later too. So the season's just kind of shrinking. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting finding for that yeah. reason. And then I, I didn't mention anything about the difference between when snow is or in a snowy year versus a dry year. But um, in snowy years, the energetic cost is just overall higher across elevation, too. So that's kind of what we had, had predicted. Um, but at high elevations, they, they seem to be this site where it's just so similar. There's just always a little bit of snow. And I think this kind of says that, like, this may be a good site that is resistant to decreasing snow too so they may be able to move up in elevation if conditions become difficult otherwise which is a pattern that we're seeing otherwise in active seasons um, a bit more so the like ranges of butterflies you see them move up um, in elevation and plants move up in elevation in response to increasing warm temperatures but there may be this benefit in winter as well so you're going to see more and more things just kind of restricted to the top of the mountains Yep. And at some point you run out of mountain, you can keep going up too. So there's kind of a limit. That's why mountains are interesting besides getting to go hike around mountains um, as a job, basically. But yeah, they're, they're interesting because there is so much change over such a short scale. And then they eventually just kind of stop. Does it, has doing field work changed how you experience, I don't know, the outdoors when you're not doing field work? Yeah. Yeah. I will. I, it's hard to tell. I guess what is field work and what is like biology or being a scientist for me, I guess, um, because they kind of started at the same time, basically. And um, 
so yeah, I, like my initial answer was going to be, you know, going someplace I like will always look on plants for bugs and like, I don't know, just kind of notice environment, environmental conditions, just weird stuff like that, that I probably wouldn't have if I didn't do field work and then also didn't study biology as well. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of changes the way you see the world in general, right? Um, yeah. But I also don't know. Yeah, I've been changed from then, but also a lot of stuff has changed since I was pre-science. So um, who knows what's responsible for what? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun, but I think uh, we are running out of time on the interview. But yeah, do you have anything that you want to leave the audience with before we go? We're faced with this existential crisis in terms of climate change, right? And there's a lot of negative emotions, I think, that are associated with that. And I, I think it's it's easy to get kind of get really far into that. And I, I guess what I'm trying to kind of get at is is that yeah, you don't have to be a PhD student to, to notice a bug in the environment or yeah, it's just um, it all fits together in such a, a cool way that it's I think it's really important to kind of get out and go experience those environments and things are changing, but they still are how they are now. Yeah, today I've been speaking to Kevin Roberts from the Department of Integrated Biology. We've talked about his work on beetles in the Sierras and how they survive the winter. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Uh, tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.